This podcast is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school, with locations across the United States and online. Become a recognized expert and join the wine community and gain the confidence to do what you love with the winner of the WSET and Riedel Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on any Napa Valley Wine Academy classes when they use the code NVWA podcast at the time of enrollment. That code again is NVWA podcast. For more information on all the courses offered, visit NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. That's NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. It's definitely a job not done, and I'm less piss and vinegar than I used to be as a young. I used to be much more like blame and shame, and now I'm much more like trying to understand the problem so we can solve it because it's this is an existential crisis to us. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, this is the Stories Behind Wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influence the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfus, and in this episode, I sit down with Paul Mabry, the digital godfather to the wine industry. We discuss his career and metamorphosis from a young beer salesman to one of the leading proponents of the transformation of the wine industry, from one that has historically been technology adverse to an industry that needs to embrace the power of digital and social marketing and new routes to the consumer. This is Paul's story. So how did you get involved in the wine business? I mean, how did your journey start? Yeah, that's a little bit of a crazy tale, actually. I was going on the way to college and I met a guy named John Wright. He's actually probably one of the greats of Napa Valley, but he's not really in the history books. He was the one who founded Domain Chandon USA and built the winery there and planted half a Carneros. And he had his own microbrewery that he was running called Napa Ale Works, and he was looking for a sales representative. And I needed a job, and I was in LA, so it kind of worked out. And even though that was a microbrewery, because it had the name Napa, they put me always with the wine category. So I spent more time with wine than I did with beer down in LA, and then it eventually came back up to Northern California and then went to work for Nibom Coppola. Okay, okay. Yeah. And what were you doing with Napa Ale Works? What was- I was a terrible salesman. <laughs> to put it bluntly, I was a terrible, terrible salesman, but fortunately, I, um, a pretty good geek. So I wrote my own basic CRM program, hmm. which really told me who to call, when to call them. And so my sales increased over time. I knew like what the people's children's name was, were, did they like cigars or not? Did they like wine? What kind of beer? So, and every day I had a printout of the people I had to call. Very rudimentary stuff, but it helped. Right on. And did, what precipitated the change to Nipam Coppola? Yeah, a youthful hubris, to be honest with you. I, I didn't think I was going to be CEO. I was already the youngest VP and it had given a lot of press around that, but I didn't think I was going to be CEO by the time I was 23. <laughs> so as you can imagine, that was a, a ridiculous thought process. And, and so I called up a guy named Earl Martin, who was the president and eventually CEO of Newbaum Copeland. And I asked him for a job and he put me in this really strange, almost like a skunk works role where I did all these different things within the winery. And that's really kind of cut my teeth on the cross-training of winery stuff after having sales and drag a bag in LA in a hard market, going up and learning DTC, account sold data, uh, compliance, all of that work. So did Earl already know that that was a direction he wanted to leverage or a skill he wanted to leverage of yours or? I talked him into it. Yeah. yeah. I begged him, talked him into it. Now he's my neighbor, which is great. But yeah, he was very kind to give me that opportunity and train me a lot. And he's such a data-driven guy that I learned a lot about it, looking at the numbers all the time. 
And where'd you go from there? I mean, how did it? Yeah, no, that's a great one too. So I went from Nibam Coppola to become a dot communist with everybody else. And I was in that early first stage of dot com companies in the late 90s called winechopper.com and wine.com. And then Mm -hmm. they ended up merging together. And I rode the great ship into the iceberg and rearranged the deck chairs a couple of times while it sunk. So I had a very different dot com experience than most people. At that point, I decided, hey, it's time for me to leave. I'm not going to build my own winery website. And it really got to unleash the nerd. I got to unlock the inner nerd at that time. And, and it was good to be geek in the late 90s and even now. Geek is chic, as I tell my wife. It seemed to have worked. And then I founded what was originally called Inertia Beverage Group, and now it's called Wine Direct, under the premise that I didn't want to build a site that attracted wine. I wanted to empower all the wineries by giving them the tools. I was like the um, Levi Strauss, essentially. Got it. So what was different about doing an inertia beverage group that set it apart from wine.com? I mean, both challenging situations, right? Getting wines into people, shipping the wine to the end consumer. How was it going to be different with inertia? Yeah, that wasn't really my problem. My problem was the fact that at the time, uh, wineries were buying websites for about a quarter million, half a million dollars. You probably remember that way back then. It was ridiculous. And then they'd have to pay a designer and website developer to keep upgrading things like the, you know, just basic content on the site. So we built the first ever software as a service where you could have your own content management system, e-commerce, and we got it down to $20,000 a site and then eventually down to $2,500 a site. So we were commoditizing something that was very expensive and then people could go do their own work on it. So if you bought wine online from, let's say, 2002 to 2005 from a winery, mm-hmm. even if all the shipping and all that baloney didn't really matter, it was our software was the predominant software empowering those wineries. Right on. And what happened from there? And that's where you and I met, by the way, too. It is. Yeah. 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 I remember back the Benzinger days. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. More hair and and darker at that point. (laughs) So where did it go from there? Yeah. So I raised $16 million and got the company pretty large, ran it for seven and a half years. I was CEO for a very long time. And then I left in 2009 trying to figure out how am I going to change the wine industry using technology? That's kind of my I think that's my life goal, really, is to use technology and really bring the wine industry into the modern age. So in 2009, I knocked on wineries' doors and I said, hey, guys, I showed you this thing called e-commerce. It's pretty cool. It's obviously working. There's this new thing called social media. I promise you it's going to be excellent and cool. And as usual, the wineries looked at me and said, oh, Paul, you're so cute, that fad when it changes. But it was a great experience. And we founded a company called Vintink. It was the first social listening company where anything you said on the web about wine, whether it was Napa, Chardonnay, Behringer, Mandavi, it didn't matter. We were harvesting that in like a switchboard, sending it to the winery so they could respond. And then we became the largest software company in the world for wineries. We powered 1,400 wineries, bootstrapped that sucker all the way to the top. And then I sold it in, I think it was like 2014, 2015 to a big agency. Had a great exit, put a nice payment on my house and followed that software around through this large agency. And then it resold to a restaurant middleware in New York City. Okay. And then I left there. And about a year and a half ago, I was recruited to be CEO of this company, which is called Emetry. And it's an insights company that takes all that big data using that very white big data and pulls it in, slices and dices it so we can see around corners for wineries. So I know a lot of this, I mean, you've always been on the forefront of these things and probably one of the industry's loudest voice on the importance of data and knowing your customer. Has that been frustrating at times? Yeah, for sure. To your point, I've been the pioneer as it relates to all things digital, not just data. Data is just a component of it now. And even as I look to the future, data is just a piece of what I want to unlock for the wine industry. It's been very hard. It's been, there've been some times where there've been trying moments as you try to move forward and you 
try to bring new ideas, which are really not that new. Their e-commerce has already been there by the time we brought it to the wine industry. Social media had already been there by the time we, it was, we brought it pretty quickly mm-hmm. and very differently. And in fact, even innovated in wine back to social media. But the wine industry behaves differently than almost every other industry. It thinks differently. It moves differently. It acts differently, which is kind of the Rubik's Cube for me. And don't get me wrong. I love wine. I enjoy tasting wine. But my passion is about the wine industry, this impossible puzzle that I'm trying to solve all the time through behaviors and giving benefits and trying to help them. And the reality of it is, is originally it started as, again, hubris. I wanted to be that guy that changed the wine industry. Now it's about passion and love. It's about my neighbors and my friends. We're all powered by this industry. My wife is a CEO of a winery. I go to the grocery store and the kids that go to the same school. We're, this is our community and not just here in Napa and Sonoma and Paso Robles over a good couple of decades, I hate to admit have made friends everywhere in this piece in France and there are going to be hard times coming. And how do we get ahead of that and survive that? So that's where I'm rooted now. What's the biggest challenge to, I mean, like you said, the things you talk about and you evangelize are being used by other industries, right? To great success. Mm -hmm. What is it specifically about the wine industry that makes it a challenge to convince people that, hey, the tech's out there, it's been proven it's time for you to leverage it too. That's an excellent, excellent question. I think it's fourfold actually. And, and you know, I've had to analyze, I feel like a digital anthropologist for wine actually, to be honest with you. But I think that the first is we've been blessed with success. So why face and change when we didn't have to? I mean, 20 years of double digit growth, 25 years of double digit growth, almost every single major wine valley has a plethora of enotourism. I mean, Napa gets what, 4.2 or 3.5 to 4.2 million tourists, depending on how you slice and dice it. So why have to change? And then we have the romance of wine, which has its own problems. Lots of people want to work in the wine industry and they'll work for less money. So we don't attract the best talent. If you're not paying the best dollars, you don't get the best talent. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that these people aren't nice and kind people. It just means that they're not skills that it doesn't match the needs that the wine industry has. And then the last one is our product behaves differently than almost every other consumable. It's a finite resource and it's very It comes on an annual basis and we want to be very risk adverse to it. We don't want to lose that production, right? So we we don't take a lot of risk with things we do Mm -hmm. because we only have a certain amount of it and it's labor intensive, it's cost intensive, and it only happens once a year. Mm -hmm. Like vodka, if I have a great vodka or if I mess up on a vodka, pour it down the drain, I can get more potatoes if that vintage is gone. Interesting point. One could also look at that as a point of differentiation and something to leverage, right? That vodka stays vodka year in, year out. You've told the story once, it's been told. So how do you keep it new? Uh, The wine industry, you do have the opportunity to tell a new story, uh, every vintage almost. We get to turn a bug into a feature. Yeah. And it's a great part of our story is that we turn bugs into features on a constant basis. Yeah. The complexity of wine is a bug that we turn into a feature. The diversity of wine, which is an amazing benefit to us, is a bug. And even diversity within a single variety, within a single region is a bug. Meaning that like in the old days, you used to buy Napa Chardonnay. And it meant something or Napa Cabernet. Now you can buy a Napa Cabernet and it's everything from something that's completely unoaked all the way to an oversaturated, overripe, over oaked beast. Right. How does a consumer meet expectations when they're looking at Napa Cabernet when you have that kind of diversity? You've been a proponent of listening to your customer. And it seems almost counterintuitive that a winery would be resistant to implementing mechanisms by which they can really not only listen to their customer, but reach out and engage with their customer. They're so focused on the tasting room. 
Can you talk a little bit about that, what you've encountered in discussions around yeah, that? I'll talk twofold. I mean, the listening thing is, is insanity. I mean, look, I create a social listening platform. Mm-hmm. And I used to say that people are talking and they're ringing your phone. It doesn't matter if you're listening or not. The reality is they're still calling you, whether they're calling you on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram. You make a choice not to answer that phone. And I used to drive up and down Napa, Sonoma, and I would tweet to people. And I say, if you answer this tweet within the next hour and a half, I'll buy your wine. And I think, I don't even want to name how many times I did it. I think I got one or two people, which is a terrible, terrible thing, right? When you think about that, it's like I called and I said, I'm going to give you money and no one cared. Yeah. As it relates to the tasting room, we've moved into the places that are easy a lot. I mean, the double digit growth was wonderful for us. It was a great success. Whether you love or rate Robert Parker, he brought a great light onto the industry. The boomers did a great job really lifting wine up and helping it get in, in a higher value and but when we have trouble, we always lean to the easier things. And in 2009, when we, we saw the first perfect storm we've seen in probably 70 years since Prohibition. So what happened in 2009 is, you know, we had the recession, but it wasn't just the recession. It was a recession coupled with the abundance of competition that we'd never seen before, both domestic and international. Mm-hmm. So suddenly we had this huge influx of competition. And at the exact same time, we had this giant diminishment of market access. So there are less and less wholesalers. So that's what really caused that problem. And wineries out of survival said, well, finally, we should really do DTC. Even though DTC has been around since 1995, they finally said it's time to do DTC. But the mistake was they said DTC was tasting room. And that is without question the weakest model or the most, it's the most effective model, but the most inefficient and costly model that you can look at. So it's Rob McMillan, I joke about all the time. It's like saying, hey, you know what? Do you want to buy a Tesla? You have to fly from Michigan to San Jose, test drive it, and then we'll ship it back to you. <laughs> That's a terrible business model, right? That's absurd in its own right. So, And that is our winery DTC business model. Come here, taste it. Now, of course, when you get in the Tesla, you're like, this is a great car. Of course, when you go visit a beautiful winery, doesn't matter what it is, the romance and you're enamored and you're there with your friends and you've got a little drink on and the valley's just beautiful and the sun and the weather. If you can't sell wine there, you got bigger problems. Yeah. So how does a winery go about flipping that? How do they approach DTC from a standpoint where they don't have to fly out? Look, I'm a digital guy. I believe digital is the thing that flattens the world. It, it transcends time, space, distance, everything. So it's a pretty culture language. The internet's really great for that. Google has flattened the world. The internet's flattened the world. And it also allows you to scale and touch a lot of people with one relationship. So fundamentally, I, I believe in that in essence, but I think that your question is rooted in, I don't think anyone has that answer. Mm. And what I mean by that is that's the blue ocean that we should all be reaching for instead of the arms race that we're doing in Napa, which is building bigger giant temples. And that's not just happening in Napa, it's happening in Sonoma, it's happening in Paso. It's that trend of enotourism, that ship sailed, but that's an unsustainable arms race. If you're going to win the war, the real question is, how do I reach a customer in their house so that they buy the wine there, are the taste unseen, sight unseen, or whatever levers they are without discounting. How do you build that brand in a meaningful way? Well, you bring up an interesting point. I mean, Napa maybe has a great example of this. And I know you, back in October of last year, you were interviewed by, I think, Forbes magazine. One of the quotes was, winter is coming for the wine industry. What does that winter look like? Yeah, the wine industry, is, we've been very fortunate. Very, very fortunate. And I say that over and over again. And, and our valleys are very loved. Our wines are loved. And I'm not just talking about California. I'm talking about Oregon, Washington. We've had a great run at it, all of us. And in 2005, we fought really hard for the Supreme Court hearing to sell more, more wine DTC, right? So that was a great first boom where we could open up states. Even though we already had access to 60% of the market, it was a great 
leveling field. But when that court case happened, we intentionally left out retailers that we wouldn't have a competitive set so that we could actually have an advantage as wineries. You remember back in the day when we were going for DTC, there was all these red herrings. Underage drinking is going to happen. You can't collect tax dollars. So many like concepts. So we went out, we got direct to consumer shipping. We successfully showed that we can ship wine without sending it to minors and get taxation properly distributed and that we could ship it economically. And during that time, the competitions become harder and harder. Mm -hmm. So we've got, like I said, unprecedented amount of domestic and international competition. The routes to market have become less. And DTC has kind of been something that we've leaned against, but still not really had any tough competitors. Right. Well, the Supreme Court's going to recently, the retailers are like, well, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If the commerce clause works for wineries, it works for retailers. And to be honest with you, they're right. And once that happens, they have all the advantages. They have the selection advantage. They have the price advantage. They have location advantage. And we're not ready to fight those guys. We're not ready to prepare because we haven't buffered up our e-commerce business or our skill set or our acumen. And they have. Even within their limited scope, they've done a much better job. And once they're unlocked, by the way, that's when the gorilla, the you know, the 800-pound giant comes out, which is Amazon. And not only Amazon, an Amazon like no other industry seen, meaning that Amazon bought Whole Foods and it has actual purchasing power plus e-commerce acumen plus location of high-density affluent neighborhoods for same-day delivery. We have never seen a competitor or a market that turns into that when the, the Supreme Court rules for retailers. And we're not ready for it yet. And we should be bracing for it, investing in and getting ahead of it. Very compelling point. I mean, very compelling point. We've seen what Amazon and that model has done for other retailers, right? And brick and mortar sounds very doom and gloom. It's funny. It sounds doom and gloom. And actually my message this year, so I've been actually on, this is my busiest speaking season I've ever had. Usually I do one or two keynotes a year and just kind of enjoy that piece. And this year, I think I'm doing 12 keynotes in seven countries or something like that. So it's been a pretty heavy lift this year. And my theme is about future-proofing the wine industry. And um, it's not about data, It's not, but it's about connecting with the customer and doing it digitally and reaching home. And direct-to-consumer is the future for that. Mm -hmm. And to kind of put it in perspective, so if you build a, well, not I call it, it's called a digitally native vertical brand, right? So they manufacture the product and sell it all the way, but everything they start with digitally first. Aside from the digital first and selling it digitally, a winery looks exactly the same as a digitally native vertical brand. It's pretty amazing. And it insulates you against marketplaces. So I'll give you two small examples. Warby Parker. You mm -hmm. can't buy them on Amazon, but they do an amazing job, right? And they're a big company. Allbird Shoes, Tesla Towels. And you're just seeing more and more of these out. And in fact, the large companies like Procter & Gamble have incubators starting digitally native vertical brands. And even the biggest companies in the world are like, wait a sec, a direct connection with my customer is more valuable. So if you look at Nike, I think in the last six years, they've moved up to 30% direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. Nike. That's a pretty impressive statement. So my philosophy is that we need to lean harder into direct consumer. We need to lean harder into direct to trade even or in those pieces and create direct relationships with our customers. Mm -hmm. It's more sustainable. And how we can capture that customer, like I said, in Boston that never came to Napa Valley and get them and make them happy and keep them on that cycle and give a good value exchange besides just great wine. And if it is great wine, how do we keeping them motivated to keep buying our great wine in a loyalty? Any examples of wineries in this space that are leaning that way, that are more in tune with seeing that opportunity? Because it seems very counter to what the bigger picture of the wine industry thinks about direct-to-consumer, right? I think they're still stuck in that mind, like you said, get them out here, give them that $150 tasting experience, charge them $175 for a bottle of wine, 
and then send it to them on automatic wine club shipments. Any wineries approaching that differently with that digital native slant? I think all of them are leaning that way. I mean, I actually brought out Kara Golden from Hint Water to talk about, I don't know if you know Hint Water. Yep. Yeah, great water. 40% of its business is direct to consumer. Water, for God's sake. And talk about how important it was that they use that, that water is not just to sell and get create direct customers and release margin. It's also for product testing. It's also for consumer understanding, for changing the packaging. And that feedback loop helps them do a better job for their, it's synergistic with their trade business, right? Mm-hmm. To your question, I think there's a lot of wineries moving that way. I think that's the trend. And you hear the rumblings even with the largest wine groups in the world. You see the treasuries and the constellations really leaning into direct consumer in a way that we didn't see in our tenure in the old days. You see smart, smaller brands, and I say smaller, Farniente and Duckhorn or Wenti are very smart leaning into their pieces and trying to do it. And then you always have the boutique ones will have some interesting components, but in a meaningful, larger way that's like looking about digital as a connection point beyond just like an e-commerce store where you up and you pound your list with email blasts. Yeah. I mean, what frustrates you most about that piece, right? It seems like the handwriting is on the wall that the industry will be changing is going into that direction. And I think as with many other pieces and many other industries, there's the early procrastinator, Mm -hmm. not procrastinator, but... Early uh, adopter, yeah. yeah. Early adopter. Um, In our industry, maybe early procrastinator. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the early voice, right? You've always been an early voice in this industry. You were talking about social when people really didn't understand social and... Ecom when they didn't understand ecom. Right. And now you're talking about this new looming winter, quote unquote, on the horizon for the wine industry. How frustrating is that, that you see it coming and that you still have people doing things the old way, right? That are set in their ways. And does that frustrate you? Or do you feel empowered by that? Say, hey, my job's not done. I'm, I'm going to keep pushing. It's definitely job not done. And I'm less piss and vinegar than I used to be much more like blame and shame. And now I'm much more like trying to understand the problem so we can solve it because it's, this is an existential crisis to us. And then you layer on things like the millennials drinking less, possibly, or at least at the price point that we need. So there's a lot of factors happening. So it's more of a quest than it is frustration. I do feel that my voice has changed since I was at those two previous incarnations because I bounded those drunks so long and that they actually became right, that people listen differently to me now. And I've created some long-term relationships that are people that are now executive peers that as we move through it so we can actually have conversations on how to adjust this. And some of the most amazing marketers in the world are thinking ahead of like this about how to use, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's digital marketing, whether it's data, all those components to do it. So whether it's Amy Hoops or Carol Reber, whether it's Christine Mole or Andrea Smalling, these are excellent people who are like really leaning and thinking ahead of the curve. So I'm appreciative for the way, and they're giving a good feedback loop so that I can learn as well, so that I can help to guide the general industry forward. Got it. Yeah. Recent developments, there's consumer trends and preferences changing, right? You mentioned millennials their drinking habits are different than what the wine industry has relied on for many years. The baby boomers, right? The holy grail of, mm-hmm. of wine consumption. We have that. You throw into the mix of that cannabis, for instance. Are those things at all kind of red flags on the horizon for the wine industry beyond just being better at getting their product out and getting the product into someone's hands? Should a winery be worried about cannabis, for instance? I think cannabis is less so. We just had a gentleman come from Canada and I can send you the cannabis report. I think it's, we're uniquely insulated from what cannabis does. So when you start talking about those different concepts, so you're really looking at buzz per buck, you're looking at mouth share and stomach share. Those are kind of the three kind of parameters. 
we're not really fighting against buzz per buck. That's spirits. That's beer on that piece for it. We are much more that luxury. We're also a very one of the few communal. I mean, we're not sitting in front of each other and opening a bottle of scotch and pounding it down for the night. And if we are, it's a, it's a different kind of night. It's a different kind of night. It's a hangover night, right? I don't know what you have. So we have a, and we're much more tied to meal than any other beverage as it relates to that. So we have some great things that separate us from cannabis. As it relates to the millennial piece, look, cohort grouping by generation is actually a pretty poor way to measure people. The only thing that you can actually pretty much associate with that is three parts of their life, how close they are from birth, how close they are to death, and where they are in their affluence cycle. And the one part of the millennials is they're kind of out of sync with the affluence cycle for sure. For a myriad of reasons, college, debt, unemployment, boomers staying on longer, that is definitely affecting at least some parts of wine. But we also are facing an unprecedented choice of everything. I mean, the amount of craft spirits we have. So we're not just drinking one thing. It's not a monoculture as we grew up with, with the boomers. Mm -hmm. And we have to look at it through that lens. Our access to unusual sherries or Rioja wines or a bunch of different flavored seltzers or all these things are occasionally, and we can have a night that goes through all of those things. Mm -hmm. And that also erodes one single category. So I want to kind of dive a little deeper into yeah. in this very interesting concept that I haven't heard before, and that's the effluent cycle of millennials. And if you overlay that with maybe Napa as a microcosm, right, and what's happening in Napa, right, hotel rooms are getting more expensive, eating out is more expensive. Winery experiences have gone from back in the 90s where you would be very hard-pressed to find a tasting fee, right, and an experience. Now we're talking about coming to the valley. And when you total all those things up, you know, a weekend is going to set you back. Three or two. Yeah. yeah, if not more during high season. That puts it kind of out of reach and out of touch with that millennial That's exactly demographic. Right. Where does Napa Valley go from here? So this is a question that we talk about a lot, actually. And people talk about Napa being priced out of it. Look, it's a special place. It's a, the Epicurean center of the United States, probably, between food and wine, between Keller and Chiarello, between all the amazing wineries we have here. And then Sonoma, we have our sister county on the other side. I think there's always a place for a beautiful affluence goal and target. And we should treasure that. We should actually elevate that and say that's what we are and adopt the fact that we're that and continue to make it aspirational for people of generations as they grow into that with their wealth that they want to do that. It's like all of us have something that's passionate for us. And so if you're a foodie and a wine and you want to go to the best place in the world, one of the best places in the world to go taste food and wine, we should sit at the top of the hill there and always be that changing amorphous thing that's adjusting and adapting to attract the people when they hit their affluence curve. And that means beautifying our town. That means making it easier to get here. That means better hotels. That means all of those things. It means taking care of our community and the sustainability of that so that it, we can talk about those things, not just in terms of environmental sustainability, but people sustainability. Otherwise, we'll be criticized just like everything else, but we need to lean into the right things in the future. And we have the chance to do that. I do know that people move into affluence and when they do, they find different things that they didn't want or they always wanted before. And I had a, a writer who just came from the San Francisco Chronicle a couple of weeks ago. He's an older millennial. And he talked about how he always thought Napa was snooty and that it was overrated. And they got here and he said, the food's amazing. The wineries are beautiful. The valley's beautiful. And I can afford it. And I have a kid. This is I'm here with my wife. It's much nicer than it was when I was a young kid trying to have fun and go to a hipster wine company. So I think like everything, these generational gaps, we grow into these things differently, right? Like the car you drive is different than the one you start with. You know, the house you buy is different as you get, you know, the clothes you wear. These are all the times 
And then sometimes you fall into a rut or something that you like a lot and you buy it a lot. So mm-hmm. That's a very interesting perspective that not a lot of people have, right? They tend to seem that recently a lot has been written about the demise of Napa Valley. Yeah, I read Esther's article and I have unbelievable respect for her. And I'm not saying she's the one doing it, but my mentor once said, when you're at the top of the hill, it's easy for everyone to shoot arrows at you. I think that that's a very true statement about Napa. And we've had a lot of changes. We've had a lot of failures. But so of all the regions, to be honest with you, we're just the one in the biggest spotlight, mm-hmm. the easiest one to love and hate at the same time. If I ask you to put on your digital goggles, if you will, and kind of stare off onto the horizon and, and the future for the greater wine industry. I do that a lot, by the way. Yeah. I spend most yeah. of my time doing that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you seeing out there? I mean, what are you seeing right now that people are missing and are out of step with beyond Amazon, right? Because there's been that Amazon promise now for at least 10 years, right? And some fits and starts. What else are you seeing out there? Yeah, Amazon promise still a ways out, just to be clear, but it's the sleeping giants ready to wake. Once that retailer stuff happens, it's good to go. And that that checks in the mail. They're going to go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, I think that we are definitely behind on everything that we do digitally, as I've said a couple of times, whether that's e-commerce, we're still not caught up in social media. And even the company where I'm at right now, you know, our understanding of our own data, much less crazy consumer insights. So um, slicing and dicing and doing predictive analytics against our own direct-to-consumer data, using our accounts sold data to say, and mapping it against other data sources. So you can say, okay, my wines behave better with restaurants that have outdoor patios which are all the restaurants that have outdoor patios in this vicinity that I'm going to go do a market visit mm-hmm. and using that data. To, I do think that we really are not understanding this big change of direct consumer that's happening all around us. These digitally native vertical brands are going all like crazy. And I also think that the subscription model left us a while ago mm-hmm. and we never changed. So subscription services are everywhere, whether it's plated, stitch fix, dollar shave club, and they're going much faster than we are in using that, the models and adjusting and adapting to consumer behaviors. Mm-hmm. And we're still just shipping a couple of bottles of wine as a paid sampling program and calling it a club. So that's a pretty big change. Interesting. I mean, that's so true. You get everything from your meals delivered to your clothes delivered. Why not your wine? It seems like. And we have our wine delivered. We've been doing it the same way since the 70s, yeah. but we just haven't adjusted. And we call it a club and a club comes with benefits that you can use. I think Napa is one of the worst at this, which is we give these benefits where you have four free tastings a year. But if you look at most of our visitors, they come from out of a 90 mile radius. So <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to me, four free tastings when I can't use them. Or you keep sending me these emails of these beautiful events. And by the way, it's another $2,000 airplane ride plus $2,000 for the weekend just to go to this one simple winemaker dinner mm-hmm. for a hundred bucks. So mm-hmm. We're giving them a great deal. It's $150 winemaker dinner or 200 or 300, whatever it is, right? So- A lot has been talked about in the marketing space in general, not just the wine industry, but about machine learning Mm -hmm. and AI. Mm -hmm. How do you think that will impact the wine industry? And do you think there's opportunity to leverage some of those technologies in in reaching the consumer or or becoming better adept at understanding data and how to leverage it for DTC business? Yeah, no, I am talking about some of those trends. I mean, AR and VR augmented reality and virtual reality are very interesting. I'm actually especially interested in augmented reality as Mm -hmm. it relates to the 19 crimes business that they did. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to move away from it being novelty, like a QR code, and we need to build a story arc from it because the feedback loop of having that customer scan your bottle at a high frequency is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And continuing to keep them engaged either at point of purchase or when they take the wine home beyond just drinking the wine is really interesting, whether they're learning it through education or a continual series. 
or different conversations. Imagine Chris's winery that has once a week you scan the label and you're telling a different story about the vineyard. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you're much more engaged to that wine or you're keeping it longer in your house, right? right. I think that that's a big opportunity we're missing. And then to your side about uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, there's a lot of applications for those things that's happening around us all the time. I mean, obviously in the vineyards where we spend most of our money, unfortunately, in production side, we're using a lot of that stuff. On the consumer side, there's tons of that too. We've been doing a lot of work with regression analysis. So what we do is we we take three years of data, we analyze two of it, and we get the machine to learn to say predict the third year. Mm-hmm. And then when it hits the actual third year that's already happened, then we say now project forward. It's pretty, it's cool science, to be honest with you. It's really neat, actually. This is great. So tell me a little bit more about Emetry and exactly what Emetry is doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, yeah. We really interested here. That's very kind. So we're we're essentially the answer factory for the wine industry, and we solve questions that are actionable based upon three categories: so consumer insights, direct to consumer insights, and trade insights. So my job is to tell you who your customer really is, or where your competitor really is, because oftentimes we say this is my competitor, but when you see what the consumer is doing or how they're managing it or reading or interacting with your brand. And finding out that they're actually men when you thought they were women or they're actually boomers when you thought they were Gen X. That's my first job on the consumer insights. And DTC, it's really about helping you see into the future and around corners and really shaking up to understand who's your best customer today and who's going to be your best customer tomorrow and who's your most at risk and really changing how that's measured using a lot of different behaviors. So whether it's, are they purchasing up and beyond their, beyond their wine club? Is that an indicator of longevity? their visitation times. So we add all these into the algorithms and we're continually adjusting and changing and adjusting and changing that. And then we're applying those same DTC principles to the three tier. So we take the council data, we enrich it, and then we do the same thing. We're like doing predictive analytics to say, hey, we think that these accounts are going to leave, go send your sales rep in. Or by the way, you behave better in these types of accounts. So it's a really good way of looking around corners. And then we have a fourth part of the business we do, which is we let the wineries ask us crazy questions, which puts us on all kinds of weird like uh, goose chases that sometimes yield nothing. Other times yield some pretty interesting insights mm-hmm. and make their way into the software. And sometimes they just yield an answer for the winery that they can do something for their own business. Very interesting. And this accounts old data you're getting through relationships with wineries or you're getting you have relationships with distributors how's that data coming to yeah, you currently we pull the wineries data from them because they buy that one way or another so we're trying to give them their view we're very much against sharing wineries data with so we have it firewalled off from each other my philosophy about where wineries need to start is know thyself mm-hmm. and we've got a lot of work to do there so i've got a couple years of work to get them to really know who they are and then I have a couple of years of work to really find some answers that are right and keep adjusting them. So even that question, like, can I predict a wine club person's how long they're going to last from the day they sign up? Mm-hmm. That's a really tough question. You know, is it based on, did they visit the winery or not? Did they buy that day? So we're trying to keep adjusting the algorithm. We keep running it through different machine learning to see, are we seeing patterns? We have data scientists. It's really nerdy, geeky work. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously not the brains, of, but I'm definitely the dancer of the organization. So, yeah. <laughs> One piece we haven't talked about, and that's distributors, right? We've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about DTC. It's safe to say that still most of the revenue generated for medium to large wineries comes from the old way, the three-tier way of selling Mm -hmm. selling wine. Yeah. If the future is DTC, where does that leave distributors? Where does that leave that relationship? And is there room for the distributor 
in a re- future relationship. Absolutely. I think a distributor is synergistic with DTC. I think that depending on your brand, you you have it split up in an appropriate ratio. I think that distributors have become so big now and they have so many products that they're they're essentially localized fulfillment centers, to be honest with you. And to be really honest with you as well, their focus is on the right focus, which is high velocity SKUs that generate dollars versus sitting on a pallet of wine that's a thousand dollars a case that takes 12 months to turn. Mm. I mean, that, this, that's sitting on capital. Mm-hmm. So I said earlier, we keep turning um, our bugs into features and we expect them to want to have this specialized wine. But the reality from an economic viewpoint is why would I want to sit on a pallet of wine that takes me a year to spin when I could do 500 cases or 500 pallets mm-hmm. with lower margin and pay my people? I mean, that's a very simple economic. Right. I see the synergy right there, right? Yeah, I see yeah. the opportunity for the distributor to it's the high volume segment, and I see an opportunity for the wineries to to be able to deliver a differentiated product to their consumer. Yeah, I mean, there's some products that sell are easier than others, but for the majority of products, they don't move on their own. It's not everything's a Harlan, right? They don't all move in that velocity. Not everything is, um, and there's some exceptions to the case that have high volumes and are great products like flowers or the duckhorns or farnientes of the world, where they have a pretty good footprint. I'm really interested in things like LibDib and these kind of like intermediary wholesalers where the winery almost incubates its way into the market. Mm-hmm. And when it hits a certain turning point of velocity, then it can move it over to where it gets a better logistical fulfillment where it, it needs a person on the street to say, look, you're out of inventory or it needs a forward staged warehouse so that they can get access to it faster mm-hmm. versus shipping it from California, Washington, Oregon. Right. So I think that that's an interesting turn and we need LibDibs to get better. Mm-hmm. I also think that another interesting one is I hope to God they succeed when Treasury went direct in California for and remove their wholesaler. I think that was an important move. And I think every winery should be rooting for them for success because if they actually just, even if they just survive it and keep it steady state, the reality is it's a warning sign to all wholesalers that you can lose the biggest state in the union if you don't do a good job in the other states, mm-hmm. especially how consolidated the wholesalers are. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really important statement. It's a tough job for them to do. But I mean, if you look at some of the brands like Rombauer and Duckhorn that have California Direct, that's one of their strengths. Well, I want to, first of all, thank you for being on the show today. But before I let you go, I I do want to ask you a couple of other questions. And that is, number one, what do you think the three things that a winery should be doing now, that they can do now to be better at DTC? Uh, That's a good question. So I think the first one is making a priority, a focus and a focus beyond the tasting room. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first one. I think the second one would be to invest in people, higher level talent that, that will pay dividends over time. And the third one is stopping and mapping the journey to know how your customers are experiencing your brand. So journey mapping, they call it all the way from them trying to find out about your wine to actually landing on your website, to actually visiting your winery, to actually going home to all the emails that happen and doing that based upon a different value of the different customers. So the high-end customers, the medium customers, the low customers, they all should have different experiences. So as I've said many times, every customer is important, but not every customer has the same importance. Hmm. So if you can put those three things together, it becomes pretty successful because then you can see, oh man, I'm treating my best customers like my worst ones. Let's change the behavior about Mm -hmm. that. And I have a good person that can handle that. And I'm focused on that business. Great. And the other question, three questions would be, for someone coming into the wine business, right? Let's say mm-hmm. young new talent whose dream it is to work in the wine industry. What three things can they do to help shape the future of the wine business? That's a really good question. I think, first of all, find a great wine industry mentor. 
whether it's any of those people I name, whether it's you, my friend, and learn from them because there's a lot of institutional knowledge of the idiosyncratic behaviors that happen at wine. I think the second one is keep a foot of learning outside of wine. There's a myopia that occurs when we get into the valley where we all kind of behave the same way and we make wine clubs the same way and we make, it's a fast follower industry. We need to learn outside the industry mm -hmm. and then we need to create a, um, learn to fail forward. I think that the risk aversion that we have is really poor and none of these answers are discovered yet. No one knows how to build the best wine club that grows that people sign up from across the country or internationally. No one knows any of this stuff. Hmm. It's all, we're all learning. And anyone that tells you they know it, there's lying. We're all learning as we're going. Every winery is learning right now. This, even with the DTC we have, and we, we have a lot of accidental successes, but how do we fail forward and learn that recipe and then replicate it over and over again? Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I look forward to having you back on the show in the future because I know things are changing rapidly. Yes. And it's always great to sit down with you. It's and, always good to see you, my friend. Seriously. Cheers. Good. Thanks. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. Again, that email address is sbh at napavalleywineacademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, napavalleywineacademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the Stories Behind Wine. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>